Hello and welcome to episode 16 of Double Take. I'm your co-host, Rafe Lewis, Mellon's Director of Investigative Investment Research. And I'm your other co-host and investigative researcher, Jack Encarnacio. And upon us, the annual rite of spring that so many investors await with bated breath, proxy voting season. I can hear the crowds roaring at the mere mention of it. Hope I don't sound too sarcastic, but there's much change afoot in proxy world. Proxy votes are looked to as potential ways to achieve broader equity goals. The conversation is evolving well beyond voting yay or nay on a company's board members. So we felt it was a particularly good time to dive in and give you folks the latest. You know, call me wonky, Jack, but uh, I'm actually pretty jazzed to get into this. We have two great guests to explore what's happening in proxy land. First, we have Mellon's own John Baylor, a senior portfolio manager at the firm for nearly three decades and the chair of Mellon's proxy voting committee. And we also have a proxy voting scholar and researcher, Paul Caluso, whose formal title is associate professor of finance at the Smith School of Business at Queen's University in Canada. If I bait my breath any longer, you'll need to call an ambulance, Rafe. So let's get right to it. First up, John Baylor. John, welcome to Double Take. It's great to have you. Yeah, great to be here. Thanks, guys. Our pleasure. So before we hit you with questions, let let me just quickly give our fair listeners some context for the discussion if they're not intimately familiar with the topic today. Uh, Put simply, proxy voting allows shareholders a chance to directly express their desire to change the governance and decision-making of a given public company. For many, many decades... The overwhelming focus of these votes seems to have been on governance, particularly approving who serves on company boards and the compensation and incentivization of CEOs to do right by shareholders. You know, if you own something, you expect to have some say in what happens to it, right? Well, proxy, Rafe, is the mechanism that shareholders have to do that. Yeah, and I would say more recently, as investors have increasingly trained their sights on the environmental and social impacts of public companies, you know, the ESG topic we harp on constantly here, proxy voting has begun to reflect those concerns too, just a little. So John, let's hand you the baton at that moment. In your opinion, what can shareholders really achieve via proxy voting? And and does real change, more importantly, ever come? Yeah, well, those are those are great questions. And and I am a big believer, and the committee is a, a big believer, that uh, we can have uh, change and we can influence outcomes as we engage with, with management. So you know, I'll just give you a, a little sense of, of how we approach proxy voting. Uh, we believe that uh, the same analysis and engagement that we apply to our investment activities should be applied to proxy voting. So you know, we are fundamental, bottoms-up investors. We analyze our companies in great detail. We believe that that same analysis and engagement should 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 be involved in the proxy voting process. So I think that's that's an important point to make to, to start off this this conversation. So what can we achieve in in proxy voting? I really think there's there's three main uh, things that we can achieve. You know, one we have the ability to align the interests of shareholders with that of the board and company management. Uh, two, we can encourage transparency and disclosure, and I think that's a really important point that uh, that we're voting on many times, especially with shareholder proposals. And then, very importantly, you know, it gives us the opportunity to engage with company managements and, and encourage long-term thinking that benefits all stakeholders. And we're big believers that if a company is looking out over the longer term, uh, they're doing the right thing uh, for all their stakeholders, uh, not only their shareholders, but their employees, their customers, um, and the environment. So that's an, an important 
uh, three points that that we have that that we feel like uh, we can achieve through the proxy voting process. That is really interesting. I'm just learning something just now about my own firm I didn't even understand, which is that you guys are conducting kind of a fundamental bottoms-up research when it comes to proxy voting. Can you just give our, our listeners a sense of what that actually entails? Yeah. So, you know, we look at, um, you know, thousands of, of proxies uh, a year. And importantly, uh, when we get uh, these proxies that are coming to the committee, and we're looking through them, uh, we're doing a lot of analysis. Uh, a big part is the compensation analysis, and, and we've got a proprietary compensation uh, slide deck that we look through that looks at the TSR, the total shareholder return of that stock versus its peer group. Uh, we also look at uh, the length of uh, the, um, the compensation, uh, how much performance-based compensation versus time-based compensation. And this is all condensed in a, in a very um, easy to understand, you know, three-page usually slide deck. Uh, what else it, it gives us, uh, the slide deck, is, is the understanding of what uh, ISS and Glass-Lewis, two firms that we hire on the outside, that gives us their opinion on, on what, um, you know, their perspective is on a shareholder proposal or a say-on-pay vote. Uh, which is the compensation vote that that we can vote on for for the majority of of companies, and and then what we do as well is if there's anything that's controversial, we reach out to the portfolio manager that owns the stock or the analyst that covers the stock, and we'll engage with them to to see what their perspective is on on any given uh, issue that is coming before the proxy committee. So. So we're doing a lot of that uh, analysis uh, in conjunction with the investors at our firm. And, and we do think that makes us very unique versus, you know, a lot of the other proxy committees. Uh, we're all investors and, and we do engage with, you know, the PMs and the analysts that, that actually own the stock. Yeah, that's interesting. And I'm glad, John, that you mentioned two of the key proxy advisory firms. We're going to talk a lot more about the role they play in the proxy process in the second half of our episode with Paul Caluso. But I'd like to hone in on executive compensation and say and pay. Um, how have you seen the way CEOs pay change in your career? Are, are the goals they're asked to achieve changing? What incentive structure do you think is most effective for CEOs? Yeah, so a lot changed in 2010 with the passing of the, the Dodd-Frank you know, Wall Street Reform Act. Um, and that created a rule that companies needed to have a say on pay vote. Uh, the majority of companies that we look at um, have the say on pay vote on an annual basis. So one of the biggest things that we vote on, and the reason we have this compensation dashboard, is the, the compensation for, for management teams. And, and we think that's incredibly important because uh, we believe compensation does drive behavior for, for management teams. So it's a, it's a really important vote that uh, that we have on, a, uh, on an annual basis for the majority of our of our of our companies, uh, and to give you a sense, um, you know we 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 vote against uh, around forty five percent of those say on pay votes. So so we still believe that um, the compensation um, could be better aligned with with performance uh, on you know forty five percent of the companies that we vote on because we voted against them over the last year. Uh, and peers vote against kind of three to ten percent. So it really we stand out in terms of how much we vote against the, that say on pay proposal, the compensation of uh, of of managements. 
Um, but, you know, I would say that we are looking for pay that um, that is tied to performance. And ideally, I like pay that's tied to total shareholder return. You know, it's so difficult to know, you know whether a, a management team is doing well or not, you know, based on other factors, whether it's revenue growth or earnings per share. You know, some of that can be manipulated. Um, I know Elizabeth Warren has been talking about share buybacks can manipulate uh, earnings per share growth. You know, I'm, a, I'm, I'm actually a fan of buybacks. I think there's other reasons you do buybacks, but that is a possibility. You could uh, buy back a lot of your shares and, and your earnings could stay the same, but your earnings per share, if that's a metric that is getting measured on a compensation plan, uh, could be going higher uh, just because you're buying back shares, not because you're, you're, you're increasing the net income of, of a firm. So, so importantly, you know, we're looking at uh, we're looking at a lot of those um, metrics on how compensation is tied to total shareholder return. The other thing we're looking for is the performance that are performance based versus time based. So, we want for our large cap companies, we want two third two thirds of those um, of that compensation plan to be performance based. When we say performance based. What we're talking about are PSUs, performance shareholder units, or options. We include both of those as, as performance-based ways to, to compensate uh, management teams. Uh, on the other hand, RSUs, restricted stock units, are time-based. And so they'll get management teams will get those irrespective of how the stock price does or how uh, some of the other metrics that are tied to to, to, to performance um, and, and, and those and that's the type of compensation that you know we want to have lower and lower. And so that's the majority of times on why we vote against um, managements because they don't have enough of that performance based uh, compensation. And, um, and those are the two the two big uh, areas that uh, that we're focused on. So, John, I mean, uh, a lot of that is kind of us expressing our satisfaction or dissatisfaction as kind of a nudge to management teams and to boards. They don't necessarily have to listen to this, right? But we do have a, a real binding vote as shareholders when it comes to approving or, or voting down candidates for company board seats. And so I, I guess what I'm wondering is how, how can proxy votes help ensure that board members aren't just rubber stamps for the CEO and that they actually, you know, feel some pressure to listen to shareholders and 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 you know cast votes on company plans accordingly. Yeah, so that's a, a great point. So these say on pay votes are an advisory vote. Uh, management doesn't have to, you know, listen to to, to the shareholders, but but management does. Uh, what you'll see is if there is a low percentage um, that a that a management team gets on that say on pay vote, uh, they usually go out and uh, reach out to shareholders to to ask them why did you vote against our our say on pay. And if they don't do that, uh, if they're not engaging with, with uh, the clients, the shareholders uh, that they have, um, then what will happen is we will start to vote against the directors. We'll start to vote. We'll start with voting against the chairman of the compensation committee. And if they don't change their behavior, we'll start voting against other members on the board. And at the end of the day, to your point, What's really important, what managements really care about, is keeping those director jobs. And um, so, when we start voting against the directors, that really gets 
the uh, the company's uh, attention, and that's really the the major power we do have as um, you know as shareholders is is to vote against those directors, and and that's usually when change happens when we start to do that. But you know, once again, it, it is a it is a good message when uh, you're voting against that say and pay, and they have a low um, a, a low threshold on the approval. Um, it does start start to to create some change usually with the companies, um, you know, poorly performing companies, the poorly uh, managed companies, there is no change. And, and then that's why we step it up to uh, to vote against the directors. Generally speaking, John, there doesn't seem to be a lot of regular turnover on corporate boards. Why do you think that is? And should there be more? Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that we have in place is, um, is a tenure threshold. So we believe there should be good diversity on boards. We think there should be tenure diversity. We think there should be gender diversity. And we also believe there should be racial diversity. Um, you know, diversity on thought on boards is a key component on a successful uh, management or assess, you know, uh, a, a successful way to, to evaluate uh, how, how the management team of a company is, is doing in, in the terms of the shareholders. And obviously the directors are, are acting in the shareholders' um, uh, interests. So, so we do believe that the tenure is important. We use the threshold of 12 years. So we're looking for a, a board that has an average tenure of 12 years or less. And we really do think that that, in, that helps with this whole concept of an entrenched board that is rubber stamping you know, management's decision. If you, um, if you have less than 12 years of average turnover, we think that that leads to you know, less entrenchment on board. So, so we do take that seriously, um, and we do have that, that threshold in place uh, as we're looking at uh, tenure on boards. John, you know, from the, the insane power outage situation in Texas as a result of crazy winter weather to kind of wildfires in California, you know, we in everyday life in, in the United States and around the world, I think, are starting to kind of feel climate change, right? Um, and a lot of the uh, climate crisis um, is created by emissions from public companies, right? So uh, I, I guess the question is, can and should climate change be addressed by proxy voters? So my belief is it should be. It's an important consideration uh, that I think shareholders have in analyzing individual companies. The way uh, we look at it on the committee is that it's a risk. Uh, for for many of our our companies, uh, climate change, and so we're we're looking for shareholder proposals that ask for more disclosure. We don't want it to be too prescriptive. Uh, we want management teams to have some um, flexibility in terms of how they address climate change and in, in their individual unique circumstances. But we do believe that shareholders have the right to to have more disclosure on the risks that are involved in climate change in terms of the company's business. So, you know, when we have shareholder proposals come uh, before us on, on climate change, and that's really what we're looking for. We're looking for, for areas where a company can be more transparent uh, about the risks. And, and there's no doubt uh, there was a lot of climate change proposals uh, last year. It was about 160. 
uh, climate change proposals, we think that's going up over the next uh, few few years. We think climate change is an important consideration that uh, we as active investors need to have when you evaluate our companies and that we need to encourage from a proxy voting standpoint, you know, more transparency in terms of disclosing those risks to shareholders. Yeah, disclosure, very important on this particular topic. Do, do you think, John, we're going to see more ESG climate-related shareholder proposals make it to an actual vote, get some traction, get attention of boards. You know, we see headlines like um, Edelman, which is a global communications firm, recently surveyed a lot of investors and found that 69% of them want executive comp to be linked to achieving ESG targets, for example. Do you expect more and more of this? I would definitely expect more and more of those type of shareholder proposals um, and um, and we and we have to take a look at them on a case by case basis. We don't have any rules specifically around tying uh, compensation to to shareholder goals. You know, at the end of the day, you know, I'm a, I'm, I'm I'm the biggest fan of um, total shareholder return and, and tying compensation uh, against that. But you know, each individual shareholder proposal and and proxy vote, you know, we'll analyze and, and determine whether it makes sense for that company or not. John, in the last decade or so, we've seen a real rise in, in dual-class share structures. Um, what does that mean for us institutional investor types, and, and how can we express our uh, pleasure or displeasure at this uh, trend uh, via proxy? Yeah, so that's a, that's a good question. And, you know, we do have a good debate uh, on the proxy committee on whether dual class structures make sense, and and we do have a good debate within the firm. Uh, there are there are small cap companies that have come in front of the proxy committee, where we reached out to our portfolio manager who owns the stock and and the analysts that own the stock to get the the reasons why. And we've had lengthy discussions with with the chairman um, of a lot of these firms and and the CEO of a lot of these firms. Uh, to determine whether a dual class structure makes sense. Uh, I would say just in a broad sense, I don't believe in dual class structures. I think each shareholder uh, should have one vote and you shouldn't have a group of shareholders that have 10 or 20, you know, super voting voting, uh, majority shares. Um, I just don't think that is... um, you know, a good way to to run a public company. If it's, if it's a private company, you can do whatever you want. But if you're asking for shareholders' capital, I think each shareholder should have one vote. Uh, but that being said, we do look at these instances where you have a shareholder proposal on getting rid of the dual class structure or having a sunset provision of the dual class structure, and we'll evaluate them on a on a specific um, you know proxy uh, basis. Uh, we don't have a a rule that says you know we're going to vote against every single uh, dual class structure, but it's a high hurdle uh, when we're discussing it on the proxy committee to to have us agree on a, a dual class structure. There are some you know cases where it's a really young firm, maybe they're worried about getting taken over, and we want to give them a little more time uh, to, to be run as, you know, more like a private or, you know, uh, company with that super majority shares, well, we'll give them, you know, let's say three years after the IPO. But once again, we really encourage companies to have a sunset provision in, in that case. Um, if, if that's the time they need, 
to to start to become a, a bigger company and more well-established company. Um, you know, they're investing in the business heavily. I mean, maybe you don't want to have any activists come in there in the first few years as, as a public company. But other than that, uh, we really encourage, um, you know, one one vote uh, for uh, for one share. Now, John, there's a longstanding debate about whether a given company should have the same person as its board chairman and its CEO. And that's been the case at some of America's biggest and most successful companies, yet it can introduce big risk that there's no check on the CEO's behavior and decisions when it's structured that way. Where do you come down on that? Yeah, so this is a a change. Uh, We used to, back uh, a few years ago, we used to allow to have an independent uh, chairperson, you know, as long as there was, um, you know, one that... um, you know, was was independent on the board that had some some authority to make some decisions. You know, we used to allow companies to to have this combination of uh, CEO and and chairman, um, but uh, but we changed that um, a few years ago. And our belief now, and also ISS has been recommending against the combination of the CEO and chairman as well. Um, and and we believe that you should have an independent voice. That represents shareholders, and and that should be at the chairman level. In terms of the CEO and chairman combination, our belief is there should be a separation between the CEO and chairman. We believe there needs to be an independent voice that represents all shareholders. And if that chairman is part of the management committee at the firm, you know that's not an independent voice, and it's particularly important to us. To, to know that there is a um, you know independent person that is representing the shareholders. So even in the biggest firms that you know in, in CEOs that we really you know think are doing a great job for for their companies, we have been encouraging over the last year to um, to separate the the CEO and chairman, and, and that is a change from what we've done in the past. Last one, John. I mean, we have seen in the last several weeks and months that retail investors can exert amazing influence on the public markets now. You know, this whole meme, uh, Robin Hood, Reddit trade that we talked about in our in our prior episode. Um, you know, so here I am, retail investor at home. You know, I'm opening up my mail. I see the proxy envelope show up. And, you know, in years past, probably just tossed it in the recycling bin, right? But uh, is that naive? Is that misguided? I mean, should retail investors... Uh, actually be taking time and, and you know, voting proxy themselves? What's your uh, advice to the folks out there? Yeah, so my advice is absolutely. It's uh, it's a little bit like voting at, uh, on the presidential election. Every vote counts. And uh, I know I personally, the stocks I own personally, I, I vote um, all, my, all my proxies. And I know there's a lot to go through when you look at all that, you know, proxy information you get. Uh, before a vote. But I really think that it's important, one, for retail investors as well as institutional investors to to read through those those proxies and understand how managements are getting compensa- compensated. You know, what are some of the shareholder proposals that um, that that are out there? What are some of the risks that people are are talking about? I think it helps you become a better investor in your um, in in the company that that you own, um, and I think everybody should should vote their vote their shares 
um, and and have a voice in how the companies you own uh, perform their their duties. And and I think that's you know something that I have to remind CEOs, um, which is they don't own the company. You know, you as a shareholder owns the company, and you have a lot of power. And by voting your proxy votes, you're exerting that power to to encourage change at at the company you own. So uh, I would highly recommend that uh, every retail investor vote the proxies. As important a consideration as ever, proxy voting on the table this week on Double Take. John Baylor from Mellon, we thank you so much for joining us and sharing your takes on what's changing out there. Thank you. Okay, that was a lovely little interlude. Welcome back, folks. As promised, joining us to dive still deeper into the shareholder-public company relationship is Paul Caluso, Associate Professor of Finance at the Smith School of Business at Canada's one and only Queen's University. Paul's research focuses heavily on corporate governance, shareholder activism, and proxy voting. Paul, welcome. Uh, Thank you for having me. It's going to be a pleasure to talk about this topic with you guys. Well, Paul, I have to tell you, as a graduate of the University of Toronto, I I do feel obligated to extend you my absolute warmest of welcomes, even though I I suppose you guys were something of an arch rival at uh, Queen's. But uh, I have to say I'm I'm increasingly nostalgic for my days in the Great White North lately. So thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. And I'll say to University of Toronto that some of the researchers that I most admire are there. It's a really fantastic institute. Now that I'm not there. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. So so we're all comfortable here. This is good. Um, and let's dive right into it if we can, Paul. Uh, most institutional investors have massively diverse holdings, typically thousands upon thousands of different tickers. Yet every April and May, when proxy voting season comes around, they're expected to cast informed votes on boards of directors and, you know, votes on pressing questions of the day on behalf of their clients. So maybe we can set the table a little is there any evidence to you to suggest it's worth the time and effort, which of course equal money, for money managers to get up to speed and cast inform votes on all of these different holdings? I think that it depends is the is the answer to that, that there is increasing research that for some institutional investors that meet certain criteria, that yes, it can make sense for them to invest in research, uh, the research of casting more informed votes. So some of the things that are associated with who it might be worth it for to do that research are those with larger holdings and larger stakes. So if you're just a bigger company, you're going to have more of an economies of scale to invest into a research team to become informed on those issues. And then also, if you hold large individual stakes in companies, then that's where the cost of investing in the research for that specific company can start to be less than the benefit that you get by holding a lot of shares, if you cast a vote in the right direction, you could um, make ex- you know make profits from that vote if that vote leads to better governance, which then in turn leads to the stock price going up. But at the flip side of that is, I think for the majority of institutional investors, aren't those really big players, and uh, they might not have the resources to have these big research teams, and that their individual stakes in each company isn't necessarily going to be enough to make a big difference on the voting outcome. If you just have, you know, 0.1% of the total ownership of the company, that's not often going to be the marginal vote that changes the outcome. So for a lot of those firms, it doesn't actually make sense to invest into the proxy voting process. And I think that's why you see the rise of 
uh, proxy advisors to help fill that void of sort of information creation by almost by all of these smaller players pooling their money together, they almost are able to capture some of those economies of scale by hiring proxy advisors who then have that specialization to be able to hopefully help those institutions become informed about the, the votes by outsourcing the research to them. Oh, that's very interesting, Paul. So so they're outsourcing that, and those proxy advisors may or may not, I guess, uh, perfectly match up with the kind of institutional uh, you know, ethos of the client who's, who's using them, right? Like they may be expressing uh, their will, or maybe it's not a perfect match. But let's complicate it even a little more, right? In the past decade or so, passive investors, you know, be they index fund managers, ETF managers, what have you, they've become a majority of the assets under management in the public markets, at least in the United States. And I think this has pretty massive implications for the topic we're talking about. So uh, I'll just throw a for instance out here. 40 years ago, if an investment house owned a big slug of an oil company, I think you could rest assured that they believed in the company's product, regardless of any you know nasty effects on the environment and that kind of thing. But if you spin it forward to today, I mean, these passive shareholders are only there because the oil company stock is in, say, the S&P 500 or the Russell 2000, you know, some index. And so what I wonder is, has this uh, altered the dynamics and, and maybe more importantly, the outcomes of proxy voting? So I think that there's a few dimensions of this. One is even looking at that 40-year-old example, it's both that the investor could have potentially believed in the oil company, but there's also the fact that they have an intimate knowledge of the oil company. They've done really thorough research so that when a, a slate of votes on the oil company's future is ahead of them, they can then make an informed vote in each of those individual topics. And I think, so that's also something that you lose with an index company. Not only do they not necessarily believe in the company, but they are probably not informed in any way about the company. So that is one pressure, certainly to make um, investors less informed and make it more difficult uh, to cast an informed proxy vote. But there's another side of it, which is this idea, uh, it's sometimes called the Wall Street walk, which is that if you're a big investor in a company that actively owns that company, that you believe in, but then there's something that happens to, to undermine the foundation of that belief, say that it's poor governance, you then have two choices. You can either try to cast proxy votes that change the, the path of that company, or you can just sell your shares. And that selling of shares can exert pressure, but it also, for the, for the management of the company to change, but it can also undermine the proxy voting process because people who are unsatisfied with the company, instead of creating change, just leave. It's kind of like in a political election where people say, if the 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 outcome of the election isn't as I, I like it, I'm gonna go move and I'm in Canada now, but the, the classic line in the US is I'm gonna move to Canada. Um, so I think with index funds, it's actually a powerful pressure for them to care about the proxy voting process is that they don't have that Wall Street walk as an option. They can't sell their shares when they're unhappy and there's actually some research that shows because they don't have this option, there's actually, they're more incentivized to invest in the proxy voting process. Even though their baseline knowledge about the companies might be lower than active investors, because they can't leave, they invest more in the proxy voting process and they actually cast more informed votes and can have a positive um, effect on the 
corporate governance outcomes of the firm as a result. You mentioned, Paul, that you know the difficulty of keeping track of all of these different names and being able to do deep dive research on the questions of the day, be it board directors or be it you know questions about the future direction of the company, gave rise uh, to you know your your advisors, the firms that step in, proxy advisors, and sort of guarantee or at least represent that they've done a lot of the work you would have done if you had the resources and time as a shareholder. They've answered a lot of the questions that would occur to you if you dove deeply into it. It strikes me, too, that there's a distinct possibility that that would lead to a lot of groupthink, right, that there would be a lot of deference to the proxy advisors and that perhaps sometimes, particularly with the changing psychology of the investor in and around ESG matters, that sometimes where the proxy advisor recommends sort of you place your bets or place your votes or how to think about something might not align with how you see the world changing and how you see investing changing. I know you've done quite a bit of work on this question. Can you speak to the state of play there? So I think there has been a pervasive uh, concern about proxy advisors. And one, are they acting in the best interests of their clients, the institutional investors, but also given the dispersion and sort of interest of institutional investors, do their one size fit all recommendations both aligned to the diverse shareholder base of institutional investors, but also to the diverse types of companies. So a criticism of the proxy advisors is that they are overwhelmed in a lot of the same way that institutional investors might be overwhelmed. So they have, say, 10,000 companies globally that they're making recommendations for. And then if you look at about 10 proxy votes in each firm, that's 100,000 votes that they have to provide recommendations for each year. And they're overwhelmed. And how that overwhelmed nature is manifest is that they'll have very broad guidelines that say, if there's a vote to declassify boards of directors, we're going to support that. If there's a certain vote about say on pay, which is about uh, managerial compensation, given these very sort of cut and dry characteristics, we're going to either support or recommend to our clients to vote against it. And I think the concern is, is that a lot of times that sort of blanket recommendations are inferior to the firms, the institutional investors, excuse me, that do their own research and get that nuance that, because in a lot of the answers to these big questions in finance is that it depends. In what instances could certain governance policies be good in what instances could certain governance policies be bad? And you only know that when you do a deep dive into uh, the firms at play. And that's sort of a place that there's been a concern about this group think of the proxy advisors, that they're too powerful and that they're not necessarily representing what's in the best interests of their clients, the institutional investors, but they're actually just pushing forward what's in their own best interests, which is to generate revenue by providing recommendations to the most number of clients, but at their the least internal cost to their, their own research. And I think that also speaks, you brought up ESG, but it's, I think with ESG, it becomes a, a issue of sort of weighing this classic belief of the goal of a company is to maximize the value to shareholders against this sort of evolving belief that it's not just about the shareholders and profits, but it's also about other stakeholders. And that's really a very investor-specific idea. You have some specific institutional investors and funds that focus on ESG issues, and then other 
you even have something called sin funds that focus kind of tried to take the other side of that bet and focus on sort of anti-ESG firms. And it's can be tricky for proxy advisors if they're casting one recommendation per vote to sort of satisfy their different clients and know sort of which way the wind's going on, on what the public's demand for those ESG issues are. Well, Paul, you know, it's it's funny that you're bringing up ESG in this context because we've done a lot of work at Mellon that suggests that, you know, the ESG ratings firms also are, are very similar to the proxy advisors in the sense that it, it's very tough to have a one-size-fits-all approach there. And it's hard to know exactly how much work is going into their recommendations and their analysis. And we have found by doing our own deep dive fundamental work that we can pretty much get out ahead of the third-party ESG raters and form our own opinion, uh, which might lead to a better outcome for us because we got ahead of the curve a little. But you know, if we just stick on uh, ESG for a second, I guess what I wonder is just kind of writ large here, ESG has become a much more influential area of risk analysis and investing over the last decade. And I'm just wondering, plain and simple, because of ESG, have we seen different outcomes and changes in the whole proxy voting process and environment? So in the past few years, there has been an increase in proposals related to, for example, climate change. And that's a topic that's sort of, I think, more in the public domain of expressing concern. And there's two paths where a proxy voting proposal gets put onto the ballot. One is if management sponsors the proposal and the other shareholders sponsoring the proposal. So as there's more big institutions that are concerned about, say, climate change or other ESG issues, they can sponsor proposals. And then also as there's more sort of internal research that focuses on the potential value added of those proposals, there's certainly a path that they can vote in the direction for those ESG issues that then puts pressure on the management of those firms and by doing their own research provides a counterbalance to one size fits all approaches that proxy advisors might, might take. And I think the other thing to think about these proxy advisors, they really, one term thrown around about them that my colleague on a lot of this research, Evan Dudley recently mentioned was that they're preference ad aggregators. They want to be expressing what are the preferences of their clients in a lot of cases for things like ESG. So if they see that there's a, a sea change in clients preferring votes in a certain direction on ESG issues, they're going to be responsive. So it goes in both ways. The institutions are responsive to the proxy advisors' recommendations, but if the proxy advisors see institutions starting to in mass vote in certain directions on certain issues in future iterations of those votes. So every year, a lot of the proxy advisors put out a, a list of the guidelines that sort of guide their voting recommendations. They might modify those voter recommendations depending on how institutions have sort of revealed their preferences. Well, there's circularity there, like what, what Jack was talking about with the echo chamber. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, when it comes to proxy voting, Paul, it seems, you know, you have the votes for board of directors, you have votes on specific issues. As you look at these two items, are we seeing any evidence that corporate boards are becoming more responsive to proxy votes? Like, how would they respond if 10% withhold or abstain from voting? You know, has their response to that changed in, in recent years? 
I think that's an outstanding research question that I would be interested in exploring. The most recent sort of examination of that threshold was from a 2009 paper. And even when, as researchers, if you publish in 2009, you're probably using data that's a couple of years stale because of the length of the publication process. And what they found was that threshold of becoming responsive in director elections is about 20%. So if 20% of voters express displeasure in a certain director's decisions or actions, once that 20% thresholds are reached, and that's 20% uh, of shareholders saying, we're so unhappy with the director, we're gonna just refuse to vote for them or vote against them or abstain from the vote. And that's sort of because of a quirk of how director elections work, that there's not really a for or against vote, um, the nuance of which is a little bit complicated. But the research shows that when Matt, company management, both the board of directors and the CEO see displeasure in the sort of director election process of getting a lot of against votes, they'll actually change policy, not only on perhaps the board governance, but on other issues um, at the firm so that there's a spillover from those board votes into other issues at the firm. And I, I think that then the outstanding question is, if in 2009 the threshold was 20%, could there be more response, so some firms that are more responsive that even if they had 10% against, that they'll respond and change their ways. That to me would be a sign of good governance. And I think that's an outstanding research question, is what is sort of the dispersion of that threshold across different firms and has it changed over time? And then I think there's a related question which is that say there's a climate proposal and a lot of the climate proposals are sponsored by shareholders and to sort of pass, they need not, it's not continuous, but it's a, a hard vote threshold or vote requirement where say 50% of the votes need to be for that proposal for management to consider it. And I should add that all of these shareholder proposals are non-binding. So if management really wanted to, they could just say, you know what, even though it passed, that's really gonna hurt the company. We're not gonna be bound by that vote. We're gonna do our own thing. If they did that, there could be repercussions in other ways to the management, like a shareholder activist might see that as an opportunity where management isn't acting in the shareholder interests and target the firm to change management's um, outlook. But I think a question, to go back to your original question as the responsiveness of firms, I think something that the research hasn't looked into deeply that I would be interested in in, or other researchers uh, I think would be interesting to look at, is just say a climate proposal got 45% support. So it didn't reach that 50% threshold, but there is a lot of shareholders that are expressing their concern about the climate path of the firm or on a different, this would be applicable to all the SG issues. And I think the question then is, is management at least still somewhat responsive? Does management see, okay, we have a split shareholder base, maybe we should compromise and take some measures, maybe not as far as the original proposals, but at least take some measures to be responsive to that group of our shareholder base that really cares about this issue. And if you look at, for example, shareholder activism, which is a, sort of a subset of the governance mechanisms through which shareholders can change the firm related also to proxy voting. And this is where someone like a big hedge fund or Carl Icahn would be example uh, they buy stakes in the firm, but they're usually buying stakes somewhere between five and 10%. And 
And even with that five to 10% stake, they can create real change in the firm. And I think that that speaks to this question then, if you have 40% of the shareholders expressing certain beliefs, in some cases that must be enough for management to put pressure on management to also make changes. But I think the research is still outstanding on actually convincingly linking those two. Paul, I'm glad you brought up uh, activist investors because, you know, if as you see firms like ours here at Mellon and others that are getting increasingly laser focused about how to most effectively deploy their proxy votes and get the uh, the results that they're looking for, I, I, I guess I and many of us, by the way, you know, have especially in our small and mid cap portfolios uh, positions that are you know, quite large as a percentage of float in some of those companies, uh, just because of the amount of money we, uh, we're, we have under management. Um, you know, I wonder, is it a meaningful distinction anymore to even be talking about activist investors and more traditional institutional uh, money managers? I think that they can still be important. And I think maybe the analogy that I would want to draw is that we're in the election season in the U.S. and if you were a campaign manager of an election, you would look at sort of the electoral map and then make this strategic decisions on how to allocate your resources so that you wouldn't necessarily spend money in an area where you're already blowing out the opponent or where the opponent's already blowing out you out. Because in those situations, on the margin, a vote in the sort of informed direction isn't going to make a difference in the outcome. Where you want to expend your resources is where the vote is close, where you, the outcome is uncertain, and then your vote could actually be the deciding vote. And I think that one of the ways in the vast majority of shareholders' elections, they're blowout. So as an example, the average management-sponsored proposal gets something like 92% support. Um, so you want to find the situations where it's not going to be a blowout where your vote is really going to matter, where it can make a difference. And I think that one value of shareholder activists is even though they own five to 10% of the firm, there's now, um, they, they can sort of lead bigger groups of shareholders. So I have a paper on this and there's a, a body of literature on this called Wolfpack activism, where multiple activists will target the same firm. And that could be both the big hedge fund activists, and then a lot of, they sort of bring along a lot of institutional investors, or it could be several individual um, hedge fund activists that also still, almost every firm has some level of institutional ownership that work with those activists. And I think that once you're talking about then 20, 30% of a block voting in a certain direction, that could be a signal to other institutional investors like Mellon of where your votes are going to make the biggest difference. So I think in that in that capacity to sort of signal the most important votes that activists could make a difference. And I also think that they, so that's one dimension. I think activists can also make a difference. I was talking earlier where the management isn't responsive, responsive to shareholder needs. So there are still instances where the governance of the firm is poor. Um, they're the pervasive throughout finance is something known as the principal agency problem where the management is the agent of the shareholders and they're going to do things sort of to enrich themselves or to entrench themselves in their position. And I think the shareholder activists can be sort of the first person to lead the charge uh, to try to overcome 
those poor managers. And I think that they've become increasingly important in a world in sort of the 1980s, there used to be more of an M&A market where if a firm was poorly governed, uh, these big uh, act, excuse me, acquirers would do mergers and acquisitions and take over the firm and replace management. But in lieu of a big mergers and acquisitions market, these shareholder activists can serve a similar purpose of identifying firms that are poorly governed. And then with sort of their the coordination or the, you know, the alliance with institutional investors lead to real substantial change in the firm because there's really hard for an institution like Mellon, even if you even if they own two percent in a firm, it's really hard to be that first mover to say we're going to take you know we're going to this manager is not being responsive. We're going to take things to remedy that with just two percent of the or one percent of the firm. It's hard to really invoke that change. So the shareholder can sort shareholder activists could be the first person to sort of step forward and say send a signal that we're going to invest in making a change in this firm. We dug pretty deep on the rise of passive investors, but there's another growing shareholder category out there. Uh, We're talking about the retail investor. We read more and more these days about youngish investors making trades via an app, well, named after a certain denizen of Sherwood Forest in Nottingham, let's say. And it became pretty clear during the pandemic lockdowns that stock trading became an effective stand-in for even like sports gambling. Hard to know if that lasts, but let's play it through. When it comes to proxy voting... These retail shareholders typically hold such a de minimis percentage of the float, as you were talking about, that it's hardly worth spending time and effort to cast a shareholder ballot. Is there any evidence to suggest that that might change? Is there anyone out there trying to aggregate the power of all these retail investors and maybe harness it to influence public company governance? Yeah, well, I think that any shareholder, there's a, there's a, a lot of moving parts on this. One is that any shareholder who's trying to make change in a firm, I was just talking about a shareholder activist, might try to win allies of institutional investors. And I think the the calculation that goes on in their head is that if you have another block holder that owns a big proportion of the shares, then you only have one sort of channel of communication. You need to convince that one person and then you'll win over a big block. The problem with retail investors is as you said, they own so little, you're not gonna be calling up somebody who owns 70 shares of some big oil company to try to, to get them to vote in the direction of the direction you're going. To go in. But there are other channels that you can sort of, with a bullhorn, try to communicate to a lot of investors at once. I think traditionally the media has played that role, but increasingly social media has played that role. So that there's um, some research coming out. One of my colleagues, Mohammed Al Gundi, looks at the role of social media in various financial aspects associated with investment. And what I think his research sheds light on is the potential for these social media outlets to act as a megaphone and coordinate a lot of investors all at once. And I think when you think about these retail investors that use apps on their phone to trade, a lot of those social media platforms also have apps on their phone. They might get one notification from the trading platform, another notification from the social media platform that maybe they follow the same firm on both. And there is the potential for, I think, social media, maybe even more so now than traditional media, to influence those uh, shareholder, those retail shareholder votes. Uh, But I think you still would need somebody to sort of take that first step and make the investment in in the campaign to change the firm. Because if you're an investor that 
sort of trades on one of these app-based platforms, you probably don't own enough shares in the company that making an investment in a proxy voting campaign is going to be cost effective. But if a big shareholder already owns a lot of shares in the phone, that might be their path to win over some of these uh, retail investors. But this is all speculative. That the research hasn't yet linked uh, these various, you know, channels together. But I do think there's the potential there to coordinate them, much like we've seen evidence on coordination among bigger investors. And so, for example. I, the Arab Spring <laughs> and yes. how social media played a key role there. Well, Paul Caluso, uh, this was fascinating. Thank you so much for joining us on Double Take. Really enjoyed it. No, my, it would, it's been my pleasure, and I had a great time talking to you both as well. Investments Corporation is a registered investment advisor and subsidiary of the Bank of New York Mellon Corporation. Any statements of opinion constitute only current opinions of Mellon, which are subject to change and which Mellon does not undertake to update. This podcast, or any portion thereof, may not be copied or distributed without prior written approval from the firm. Statements are correct as of the date of the material only. This recording may not be used for the purpose of an offer or solicitation in any jurisdiction or in any circumstances in which such offer or solicitation is unlawful or not authorized. The information in this recording is for general information only and is not intended to provide specific investment advice or recommendations for any purchase or sale of any specific security. Some information contained herein has been obtained from third-party sources that are believed to be reliable but the information has not been independently verified by Mellon. Mellon makes no representations as to the accuracy or the completeness of such information. No investment strategy or risk management technique can guarantee returns or eliminate risk in any market environment, and past performance is no indication of future performance. The indices referred to herein are used for comparative and informational purposes only and have been selected because they are generally considered to be representative of certain markets. Comparisons to indices as benchmarks have limitations because indices have volatility and other material characteristics that may differ from the portfolio, investment, or hedge to which they are compared. The providers of the indices referred to herein are not affiliated with Mellon, do not endorse, sponsor, sell, or promote the investment strategies or products mentioned herein, and they make no representation regarding the advisability of investing in the products and strategies described herein. Please see Mellon.com for important index licensing information. CFA and Chartered Financial Analyst are registered trademarks owned by CFA Institute. For more market perspectives and insight from our teams, please visit www.mellon.com.